Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the 30th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon, actually, to you, Matt. Matt is uh, in D.C. for business, so we're doing this uh, via video conference. So we apologize to listeners if the audio isn't as crisp as it usually is. Uh, but Matt is out of town for business. Yep. Good afternoon, Mark. Uh, in D.C. here, uh, visiting uh, some clients, uh, business-related. I return tomorrow. So, yeah, uh, we uh, apologize for any lack of quality on the audio, but we got to keep doing it every Thursday, right, Mark? Yeah, yeah. So we'll try to cut it up and get it into the best shape possible before posting it, but just wanted to put a disclaimer out there. Um, so we'll go ahead and jump right in and just get started with the review of the major market indexes that we track uh, every week. Um, and this data is from January 22nd uh, on the close. And this data is from stockcharts.com. So the S&P 500 index is up 2.4% for the year. The Dow up 1.69% for the year. The NASDAQ up 4.18%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 0.9%, and the International Index X United States up 0.84% for the year. The three-month treasury currently yielding 1.55%, the two-year treasury uh, sitting at 1.53%, and the 10-year uh, yield sitting at 1.77%. So, um, pretty busy week in terms of headlines and current events, Matt. Um, yes. Last week, uh, the phase one trade deal with China uh, was in fact signed last week in DC. So do you want to go into this a little bit and kind of tell us about what actually uh, you know was signed and on this paper? No, I think it's smart. So let's go through this, Mark. So China has committed to increasing the imports of US goods by 200 billion over the next two years. Now that includes the much hyped uh, agricultural products, which is about 40 billion, okay? It's not clear exactly how or if China is gonna be able to reach those numbers, Mark. Uh, the country also agreed to open its financial system to foreign firms and to not pressure companies into handing over proprietary technology, okay? Now, there's a couple more points I want to make, Mark. U.S. has agreed to remove China from its list of currency manipulators and to reduce, but not eliminate, tariffs, Mark. In fact, 25% tariffs will remain on about $250 billion worth of Chinese imports, and the reduction only took tariffs from 15 to 7.5% on other goods. By Moody's estimate, the effective tariff rate only fell from about 5% overall mark to 4.6%, still much higher than the pre-trade war tariff rate of just about 2%. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you can tell me your thoughts on it, Matt, but I think this was more of a um, image uh, type of thing. Um, I think, you know, I read a couple articles on it and it looks like both sides have flexibility to back out of the deal at any time, but more, uh, more or less that this was just kind of a save, save the face, uh, you know, moment and image moment to say, Hey, we have uh, a trade deal done, at least a phase one deal that we can work on going forward. Yeah. And it's like you and I've been speculating for many podcasts that it would be more symbolic in nature in that ultimately both sides weren't going to give up too much, right. at least not until the next presidential election. So I think where the rubber hits the road for listeners is that at least we have um, a path to the election uh, trade wise, but then uh, let's assume for a moment that Trump wins again. I think that this whole process could start all over again. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with her. The next bit of news is obviously the articles of impeachment were sent to the Senate last week. Um, and the trial I think is actively going on right now, Matt, and uh, the markets still really aren't paying much attention to it. No, I mean, I think wall street views it as uh, unlikely that they're going to get two thirds of a majority vote in the Senate. And so ultimately, you know, in Wall Street's view, um, you know, it makes for good theater, right? Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, from actual policymaking and how it affects Wall Street, um, I don't think many uh, people that do what we do is paying much attention to it right now. No, no, I don't think so either. Uh, so moving on, uh, Q4 earnings have been coming out. And last week, uh, we heard from a lot of banks. And I think generally, the news was positive. So um, next week will be the peak of earnings season uh, reports for the Q4 earnings season. And uh, it'll start to ramp up towards the end of this week. So just keep that in mind that earnings reports are coming out uh, for publicly traded companies here within the next few weeks. Um, the next Fed meeting is at the end of the month. And again, we don't expect any change in monetary policy. Um, inflation came in at 2.3%, which was slightly above their 2% mandate. Um, but again, we think that they're going to keep interest rates pretty stable and try to remain impartial during this election cycle, Matt. I agree with everything you said so far. Uh, the next thing to pop up, which has kind of just been within the past couple days, Matt, is this uh, coronavirus um, that kind of started to pop up around the world, which people, um, to my understanding, think it started in China. And there's been confirmed cases in several cities in China, as well as Singapore, I heard this morning, and then a U.S. case in Washington state. So this is something definitely, I think, to keep an eye on to see if it can be contained, because I think this could have a large ripple effect through the economy. Um, and it's also uh, the week before the Lunar New Year holiday in China. So I'm reading uh, that events are already starting to be canceled due to the outbreak because they don't want this to get larger than it already is. Um, and then also, in addition to that, the State Department this morning restricted U.S. travel by pregnant foreigners to prevent people from visiting the U.S. to give birth uh, with potential exposure to this virus. So um, what are your thoughts on this? And you know, have there been things like this in the past that have had an effect on the economy? 
That's a great question, Mark. So for me, this reminds me when I was, I started in the industry in August of 99 and the early 2000s, we had the SARS outbreak um, in, uh, in, in Asia. And what it really caused is a slowdown in, in travel. So business activity wasn't really happening. And that lasted multiple months um, as, that, uh, as they isolated people and then obviously SARS went away. But this is reminiscent of that. Now, will we get to full-blown, you know, stoppage of, of travel? If it gets worse enough, I, I don't, I'm not educated on the, uh, on the coronavirus and, 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 and the potential negative impacts of it. But is it going to affect global economic growth? Potentially. I mean, they're talking about closing down Macau for the Lunar New Year, which is a big, big hub of financial activity um, in China. So I think this needs to be uh, watched. I think that for active money managers like ourselves, we're going to be paying close attention to this because we might use uh, some short-term weakness uh, in some areas to look at them maybe at a, as a buying opportunity. And we can't discuss specifics there uh, generally on this podcast, but I think I'm going to look at this more opportunistic. I don't think it's going to hang around long. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Most likely. Um, but I'm not um, alarmed that it's going to have a lasting impact. And I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with everything you just said. So the last thing with current events that I kind of snuck on here on you, Matt, I just saw this morning an alert that FICO is making changes to how they calculate credit scores. Interesting. Okay. So I think we could probably do a whole podcast or at least a financial planning topic of the week on this. So I'll save this for a later date, but it's going to be interesting to kind of dig into that and figure out how it's going to affect consumer credit uh, going forward. So in essence, what I hear you saying, Mark, is they're going to change some of the weightings as to how the score is determined. Is that the best way to say it? Yeah, I think so. And again, this is just from me reading just an alert about it, but it seems like they're going to tighten up on certain things um, to make, uh, you know, credit scores, um, I guess, uh, tighter and not as um, loose as they are right now, I guess is the best way to, to describe okay. it. So I think All they're right. going to put some restrictions um, to, you know, like you said, make it um, a little tougher uh, for people to you know, go out and get loans for, you know, whatever they need, if it's going to be a house or a car or, or something like that. Um, so it'll be interesting, but we'll dig into that. And possibly next week, we can talk about uh, the effects that that's going to have with people. Love it. Um, so moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. Um, I saw a tweet from Eddie Elfenbein on uh, January 17th of this year. And I thought this was really interesting. He tweets, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon are now worth $5.2 trillion or 17% of the S&P 500. That's up from 11% five years ago. What's your take on this? Is this a, a positive thing, a negative thing, or kind of indifferent? You know, my initial gut is I'm indifferent. I think that a lot of these larger companies are being rewarded for their low debt levels. They have a lot of free cash flow. They're putting that money to work in many ways. This does not surprise me. Um, when people, and we talked about this a couple podcasts ago, Mark, where you know some of the larger parts of the S&P in the early 2000s, such as IBM, you know, 
it's interesting to look at these companies today because the ones you mentioned are flush with cash. Um, most have double digit growth rates and earnings. And these are different animals to a couple decades ago, in my opinion. So um, what does it surprise me? No, on top of the fact that indexing is so popular and that most indexing is done on a market cap weighted basis. So as people index more, these are big beneficiaries of that index money. And then you've got active managers like ourselves who are very well aware of that fact. And we, we exploit that from time to time. So no, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting. Um, and after I put this in here for the notes for today, I saw a graphic again, I can't recall exactly where it came from, but, um, it was like the top five, uh, companies in the S and P 500 index are, you know, getting to the point where they were worth what they were worth back in 2000 or 2001 or something. So it's another fear mongering thing that I saw that, you know, the top five stocks are becoming to get too large a part of the index and, you know, a crash is inevitable. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If anyone else saw that, I saw that as well. Yeah. I mean, heck is, is a correction inevitable? Yeah, of course at some point. Uh, but with some of the underlying factors that we are seeing in the marketplace, you know, things like with what the fed's doing behind the scenes with this overnight lending program, just the average strength of the U S consumer. We highlighted a week ago, you know, uh, debt to income ratios of the average U S consumers at a 12 year low. I mean, a lot of these factors is supporting the underlying uh, stability in this economy right now, which leads me to say, you know, could we have a sell-off? Absolutely. But is it going to be one that some of these fear mongers think it's going to be another 07, 08 in the near future? I don't see that in the cards, but uh, that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of have two financial planning topics of the week uh, this week, Matt. I kind of went in a different direction because I like these two articles so much. Um, so that kind of caps it for the tweets for the week. So uh, the first one was a blog post by Blair Duquesne uh, on her blog, The Bell Curve. And this was on January 16th. And the title is Taking Social Security Early. And as always, we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, at jessupwealthmanagement.com. And uh, on the podcast tab, you can go and check out the show notes. So highly encourage that everyone goes and reads this uh, article in full. So this is a hot topic among people entering their 60s, Matt, um, whether to take Social Security early at their full retirement age or at 70. And I think Blair does a really good job explaining this conundrum in plain English for everyone to understand. Um, and I just think it was a, a really well-written article. So let's kind of go through this and dissect it a little bit. All right, let's do it. Um, so Blair says that Social Security benefits replace about 40% of pre-retirement income on average. However, the Social Security Administration estimates that 21% of married couples and 44% of single retirees rely on Social Security for over, over 90% of their income. Social Security lifts 15 million elderly Americans out of poverty. So these are pretty big numbers here, Matt. And this is why I agree with Blair that Social Security 
um, you know, is not going anywhere. I didn't really talk about it, but in the beginning of the article, she says she gets the question all the time, you know, is social security going to be there when I retire? And, you know, I agree that the government is not just going to all of a sudden one day cut this program because it is so big. Sure. Um, any thoughts on that or do you have a different opinion? Uh, my two cents is at some point I could see there being more of a needs-based uh, system on how they calculate who gets their social security benefits. Now, we're talking for people uh, that say today are under the age of 40. I could see eventually there be some sort of uh, phase-in period where you have your uh, whatever income you're making in retirement. And then you get a portion of what was told to you from Social Security on some graded range. Um, I, I just think that's where the puck eventually is going to have to go uh, because the entitlement program is just so expensive, expensive overall. You have less people paying into it than you did before. That's just my initial reaction to that question. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it definitely has a possibility to get tweaked. Um, but to answer the question of, is it ever going to not be there? I don't oh, no. No, personally I don't, think that's never going to be the case. I don't think that'll be the case either. Okay. Um, so Blair goes on and says, did you know that 57% of social security recipients take benefits before reaching full retirement age? This means that they are accepting a permanently reduced benefit for life. The earliest a retiree can start taking Social Security is age 62, and 34% of recipients claim at this age. Their monthly benefit is reduced by 30% for a retiree whose full retirement age is 67. By taking Social Security at age 63, their benefit is reduced by 25%, at 64 by 20%, at 65 by 13%, and age 66 by 6.7%. And it's important to remember that these numbers are permanent reductions. So obviously, Matt, these lifetime reduction and benefits can be huge. And I think that this paragraph is really important to emphasize because it pounds the table on what we believe most, Matt, that people need to save aggressively for retirement if they haven't already. And because of the huge reduction of benefits at um, before full retirement age, if someone wants to retire early, it's nice to have retirement savings to live off of until you reach full retirement um, so your benefits aren't reduced. I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, ultimately, you know, you got to think of a lot of different things when you're making this decision. And, you know, people are living longer and longer. So, um, you know, I think that there is a risk taking it early. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have to look at their, uh, you know, family history. And I don't want to get ahead of you if you're going to make some of these points. No, no, go ahead. I mean, there's a lot of factors you got to think about. You know, what's your family history of longevity? What's your current health status? Um, you know, if you have the ability to take income uh, from other sources to pay your bills, you know, deferring could make a lot of sense. That's why initially when a lot of these topics come up from our clients, I'm happy that uh, we have Aaron Kramer on our staff, that he is able to walk through our clients, and he is our paraplanner, he is our financial planning expert, and he can really walk through and help you know, clients determine you know, the right times to take Social Security because it is just a complex decision. 
Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and I think that, that, you know, what can make that decision easier is, you know, having that ability, like we talk about almost every week, I think, uh, to, to save when you're in your early years and have the ability to defer Social Security if necessary. Um, you know, and we'll get into a lot more of the numbers here in a second, but, um, you know, the differences can be huge. So, um, so a couple paragraphs down, Blair says, um, on the flip side of a retiree waits until age 70, benefits increase 8% each year between full retirement age and 70. This results in a much larger benefit, which can be beneficial for those who live to 80 or longer. And again, uh, it's huge for people who have retirement savings to live off of to be able to delay Social Security um, until 70 to max out your benefit because you're getting an increase of 8% per year. And we'll give an example here in a, in a second of how that would actually look in real life. Um, but also, uh, she says, in a low interest rate environment, there are not many places one can find a guaranteed increase of 8% per year. I think this is a phenomenal point, Matt. That's I mean, an excellent that's, point. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, this is what makes waiting so attractive, I think, is, you know, that your benefit is going to increase 8% per year. And it's kind of hard to go out and find uh, anything right now that's guaranteed to increase by 8% per year, in my opinion. Yep. So Blair gives an example here to give you guys some numbers of the potential costs of taking Social Security early um, or the benefits of waiting to take it later. So she gives an example of a lady named Teresa and Teresa is 57 years old and her full retirement age is 67 because she was born after 1960. Uh, she has been a high earning professional and paid the maximum in Social Security payroll tax for most of her career. Here are the estimates for her monthly benefit if she claims at different ages. All right. Okay. So there's a table here in the article that uh, if she claims Social Security at 62, the annual benefit would be um, just under $26,500 per year. All right. If she claims at 67, her full retirement age, she would get a little less than $38,000 per year. And if she waited until age 70, she would get uh, just under $47,000 per year. And this is ex assuming a life expectancy um, of 93 years old for Teresa. Okay. And then also in this chart, Matt, there's a uh, lifetime benefit. So at 62, living until 93, Teresa would receive about 848 grand in Social Security benefits. Over that period of time. Got over it. Over that period of time from 62 to 93. From 67 to 93, if she waited till her full retirement age, she would receive a, receive a little over a million dollars over her lifetime in Social Security benefits. Okay. And then if she waited until age 70, all the way up to age 93 life expectancy, she would have about $1.126 million in estimated life uh, benefits from Social Security. So that just shows you how, how big it is. I mean, even from 62 to 67, the difference over her lifetime is just under $175,000. Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, I think that if you can afford to do it, there is a massive benefit to delaying social security. But then again, you have to bring into uh, account, um, you know, family history and how good your health is and, and what your life expectancy is going to be, because there's a lot of people out there that aren't going to live till 93. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think for the majority of the population, Matt, is that, life expectancies are increasing, you know, the more as technology improves and the more we get to know about health and nutrition and fitness, I think, you know, we've seen over the past decade that um, the average uh, life expectancy has increased over time. I agree. I mean, and that's going to be a big factor. I mean, heck, Mark, look at all these pension funds that are underfunded because of, uh, you know, longevity. Oh, yeah, that's a huge, a huge problem that that still has no solution, in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah. But don't want to get off on a tangent, but that's for another day. Yep. Um, and then the last point I want to make uh, that Blair talks about the break even. So she said, everyone still asks her, but what about oh, the this year? will be good. This yeah, will be good. What about the years to break even? So in this example, Teresa breaks even for waiting until her full retirement age by living to age 76. Um, so this is not a stretch for women age 57 today. Her uh, actuarial life expectancy is 93. Rather about uh, rather than stress about breaking even, I encourage retirees to consider uh, the more likely scenario, which is living longer, which we just discussed. Um, so what do you, I don't know, Matt, what do you think about that? It's a tough, it's a tough conversation to have with clients. Um, but I think again, going back to the point, if you take the necessary steps earlier in your life, um, I think a lot of people really can afford to delay their benefits until full retirement or age 70, you know, if they've saved enough, uh, in their working years. I think it's the best way to say it. You know, I hate to oversimplify it because it is a complex situation, but I will say this. If a client has the ability to draw income from other sources, generally speaking, waiting tends to make sense. That's the best way I guess I could answer that, Mark, with, and I think that's oversimplifying it. I think it is too, but I think that's a, that's a good thing because you can make this as complex as, um, you know, well, what if you're in, you know, what if someone's turning, you know, 62 or 65 or 67 in a year where, uh, or a couple of years where the market's up on average 13% per year, then doesn't it make sense, you know, to, to talk about a different situation and you can really dive into the weeds and, and deal with that. But, um, but, you know, I think for simplicity, uh, for most people that, you know, on paper, it just makes sense, um, to wait if you can. Best way to say it. I would agree with what you just said. Yeah. So um, anyways, moving on to our next uh, financial planning topic of the week. This comes from an article written by Trent Ham on the Simple Dollar blog. And the title of this blog post was Don't Make Things More Complicated Than Necessary. And I think one of the emotional perceptions on personal finance, uh, financial planning or investing is that it's super complicated, difficult to make progress, and I just think the perception um, hinders people from even looking at finances, which can cause even more anxiety over this topic, um, you know, which could in turn cause people to miss payments and not take advantage of the simple changes 
um, you know, to save hundreds or even thousands of dollars. So I think a lot of people turn a blind eye to it. And then, you know, you miss a payment and it affects your credit score. And at the time, it might not seem like the biggest deal in the world. But if you miss a couple payments, you know, when you go to apply for a mortgage, you're going to be paying a much higher interest rate than if you were on time with your payment. So, you know, we started this podcast, Matt, to give people information that they can put to use right away in everyday English. And I think this article does a good job of simplifying um, these things for people. I'm glad you picked it, Mark. I think it's a good one. Yeah. So, um, so Trent starts off by saying there is a tendency on personal finance websites and personal finance books and personal finance magazines to get into a great detail about the specifics of various personal financial decisions and strategies. You'll find long articles about specific tax loopholes. You'll find long calculations that seem to indicate that one move is strictly better than the other one. And you'll find lots and lots of arcane writing about taxes. But for someone who just wants to achieve some level of financial security in life, it could be simply overwhelming, which is the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, even as something as simple as putting money into a savings account can turn into pages and pages of details and information that can cause most people's eyes to glaze over. And I 100% wholeheartedly agree with this statement. And it's kind of sad because I think this is what drives people away from even looking at their financial situation because they have this perception of how complex it is um, and, and you know what they're reading online and watching on TV. But really, there are simple steps people can take to improve their financial lives. So um, let's kind of go through some of these one by one. Great. Um, number one is having money in the bank is good. The more, the better. Money in the bank means that you have a cushion against unexpected events in your life. That's a net positive. What matters is that you're putting money aside, getting it in the right account is important, but it can wait. So obviously, Matt, we know that investing in your 401k and Roth IRA are important, but starting with something as simple as putting money away every month into a savings account, whether that be to build an emergency saving fund or save for a wedding or save for a car, it starts to develop the right habit of saving in the first place. So once you get the habit down, you can graduate to investing. Agree or disagree? I agree. Okay. Um, moving on, having less debt is good. There are almost no situations in which paying off debt isn't a good move. Again, one can make arguments about which debt should be paid off first in the perfectly optimal way or whether you're better off investing or paying off a low interest debt, but it's essentially never a bad move to pay off debt. And I just want to say, boom, done, keep it simple, pay off debt with higher interest rates first and keep working on down. Is that acceptable? That's acceptable. Only thing I'll throw out there is you know, if you got some crazy low rates, like on your primary residence right now, uh, you know, I don't know how aggressive, you know, depending upon the situation, that would be to pay that down. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, revolving credit, unsecured credit, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, the next one is struggling to pay your bills is bad. Failing to pay them is even worse. And we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but failing to pay bills damages your credit, meaning it kills other opportunities down the road. 
And I think one easy thing that people can do, Matt, is just go on um, to their utility websites or their credit uh, credit card websites and just set up auto pay on all your bills so that you never miss a payment. I Love think uh, that's the easiest way to make sure you're not getting dinged on your credit is to just put it on auto pay. Um, again, we talked earlier, but you know, if you miss a couple of payments here and there, it really can affect your credit score more than you think. And then when you move on to go on and have larger purchases, such as a, as a house, then, you know, that could be affected, uh, you know, pretty, pretty big. Um, so I don't know. I think one thing, uh, people can easily do is just automatically sent, uh, set up all your monthly bills on auto pay. And, and that way you don't have to worry about missing a payment. Love it. Uh, the last one I want to touch on is don't hamstring yourself with big bills that will be difficult to pay. And I don't know, Matt, I kind of agree and disagree with this one. Obviously, do I think people should be spending money on things they can't afford? No, but I don't want to, you know, be the person pointing the finger to people saying you can't go and get a Starbucks latte or you can't go out to eat so many times a week. I think a better way to approach it, Matt, is honestly kind of sitting down maybe and just go through the past three months of your expenses, see what you're spending your money on, and then figure out what you actually love and spend money on those things. Um, instead of trying to nitpick your budget, just pick what truly makes you happy and spend on that stuff and cut out all the other stuff that doesn't make you happy. Um, you know, I know one thing I think that I could probably cut out is a bunch of streaming services that I'm subscribed to and I barely watch TV every week. Um, so that's just one of these things where I think instead of telling people what they can't spend money on, Hey, if your thing is buying clothes, then Hey, just make room in your budget so you can buy all the clothes you want and spend less, you know, at Starbucks or with your car payment. But if you're a big car person, then that's awesome. Go, you know, go gangbusters on, on a car that you're really going to enjoy it. If it makes you happy, it makes you happy. You just have to cut out the stuff that you're, you're spending on that doesn't make you as happy. I agree with everything you just said. And I'll just add to it if I can, Mark. I think the uh, mistakes that people get into is when they get into certain purchases that have an ongoing upkeep associated with them that they're not planning for. Let me give you an example, a second property. They're thinking, oh, well, I just have this second home. I just gonna, I'm gonna have the mortgage payment. They're not taking into account that what the property insurance is gonna be, property taxes, the utilities on that, keeping that going, the landscaping, all that stuff, right? HOAs, let's take an RV. That's not a maintenance-free purchase, right? right? And if you kind of go through these, these different types of purchases that beyond the initial um, purchase, there's an ongoing upkeep. I, I see a lot of times that's where people tend to get into mistakes. Right, yeah, because they see the sticker price, but then don't necessarily take into account, like you said, the the upkeep and paying utilities and you know cleaning the place and making uh, you know upgrades to it and that type of thing. That's that's not uh, that's not in the sticker price when you go to sign the paperwork. No, I mean I'll give you another classic example, then you can move on. It's like uh, I've had clients before buy used uh, exotic cars. I'm going to use an example: a used Porsche. You know the 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 uh, Sticker price on that used Porsche might be fifty grand, 
But all of a sudden, when you do the annual maintenance and it needs new tires, you could easily be walking out there with five or six grand in annual maintenance bills on that type of a car that people aren't planning on. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the, just taking what you said one step further. That's usually the, the problem I see people get into. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we see that a lot too. Um, so that's definitely, definitely something to be aware of when you are looking at, at larger purchases like that. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think that the, both of those articles were, were really good. So I wanted to touch just a little bit on both of them, but we will, uh, like I said earlier, provide links in the show notes to those. So you guys can go read those for yourself. Uh, we don't have any questions this week, Matt. So, uh, anything else you want to add before we, uh, we wrap up here? Uh, last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, listeners, we have a lot of, um, earnings reports over the next week. So you might see some of those headlines. And secondly, uh, we are planning to record next week's podcast on Tuesday, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll be out of town in the latter half of the week next week. Um, so we will record on Tuesday. So uh, be on the lookout for that a little early next week. So thank you everybody for listening to the 30th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Matt and I appreciate um, all of you that who tune in every week. And as always, submit uh, questions uh, to my email, mark at Jessup Wealth Management, if there's something you want to hear on the podcast. Uh, again, we want to make this podcast about the listeners and what you all want to hear. Um, so with that being said, have a good rest of the week, Matt travel safe back to Dayton tomorrow and Thank you, sir. Uh, have a good rest of the business trip. All right. Take care everyone. Thank you, Mark. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the independent advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.